and welcome back to the Strength Ratio Podcast. We had a brief hiatus over the holidays, but we're back. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, as always, Kyle Klachenko, and our first guest in the new year is researcher and author, Dr. Andy Galpin. Uh, Andy, firstly, uh, thank you so much for taking uh, some time to come on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to fill up your listeners' wonderful ears with some nonsense and maybe something that'll help. Yeah. So we've gotten to know Andy a little bit over the past year, uh, having uh, worked with him one-on-one, opportunities to to learn from him directly, and just uh, hear him uh, speak also on other podcasts uh, in very... uh, very eloquent, but also easy to understand, very easily digestible information that, while scientific, is something that you can take away um, without any fear of language that you might not understand or um, feeling like you're kind of swimming in the deep and and not really knowing where all this might go. Uh, Because when sometimes people talk about research, uh, people throw up their hands and it might not be palatable, might seem like it doesn't even happen in the real world, but it does. And people like Andy do a great job at disseminating their findings uh, in very easy to understand, actionable ways. And what we're going to talk with Andy about, and you're going to kind of be along on on a conversation that will follow questions that we have for Andy, is that the field has changed a lot since both Kyle and I were in school. So when I was in school, the theory around exercise or the study of exercise, uh, and it might still be taught this way, but we've, we've learned a lot such that certain principles seem to exist in the classroom around perhaps conditioning training only. And as for what was actionable around strength training, it just the strength training literature or how you could best practice it. There just didn't seem to be that information available. Um, whether it was regards to uh, specific strength training sports or if it were, was at all um, uh, quote-unquote up-to-date because sometimes even when you're in school studying at the highest of levels, there might be things that are slow to catch up on. And it's this time that we're going to take to ask Andy questions that he's learned uh, in his own research and in his time with his peers to catch up on some questions that I would probably have asked when I was receiving my undergraduate degree. You know, albeit a great degree and no knock on that degree, um, but things have changed and we're going to seek some clarification there. And largely we'll be talking about Andy's specialty, which is muscle fiber type. And we'll kind of, I'm sure Andy will define terms quite simply for you all. Uh, So Andy, I think without further ado, when you look at the breadth of your own research, and what we know about human connective tissue, namely skeletal muscle, uh, what is it that has changed most in the past, say, five to eight years? Oh, my gosh. You started me off with that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, just so much. Well, I'll say that's it. Uh, ha- have you taught your classes in exercise physiology differently five years ago than you have now? And I'm sure the answer is yes, but when you reflect back on that, is there something that stands out as being most notably different? And when I was kind of providing that intro, did that sound at all familiar to perhaps a field that you knew being taught then and how the strength community at least has kind of bolstered itself now? Uh, Yeah, I think those are two separate questions to really, yes, it absolutely echoes what you're talking about. I mean, I'm, we probably are not too far off in age. I'm maybe a couple of years older, but really uh, the things you described when going through your undergraduate is the same thing that I did. And it's really a large part of what motivated me to do what I do now. And which is, I mean, I remember sitting in those exact same classes and thinking, not necessarily questioning the professors, but just thinking, well, there's no way that is true for somebody who's say full-time weightlifting or somebody who's a power lifter, that's going to clearly be different than a weightlifter. And I didn't think those people were wrong, but my the thing in my head would jump out to be like, well, they think it's this way, but that's just simply because they've never looked at this, 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 and this, and this. And it wasn't a criticism per se. 
it was just like I could see and you look at the research papers and like, okay, all this is coming from people who are riding a bike for 60 minutes. Well, no one's doing intervals. No one's doing complex. No, no. Okay. So there, I, I was always like, I always just took it with a grain of salt, which is, I think what you were echoing or stating at the beginning. So yeah, that, that in large part drove me to what I do now. That's a hundred percent true. So because of that, my first time teaching, uh, when I first got my job here at Fullerton, rather not my first time teaching, but when I first had complete control of my classes in 2011, uh, I had to teach it differently. And every single year, the way I teach has evolved tremendously. And I would say in the last three years, it's that has slowed a lot uh, because I finally started to wrap my head around what do we have to teach? Why do we have to teach? And I'll give you an example of that. I teach a course, uh, which is a senior level uh, class that you have to have exercise physiology to get into. And the class is really designed to help people get prepared for the CSCS, which is the Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist test. So this is a, a coaching cert certification that you have to have a degree in the field to get. Right? So it's not just a personal trainer thing. Um, the way that I teach that class now is not like anything I ever took or you guys took, which is, okay, the first part of the year we do bioenergetics and then the second part we do skeletal muscle and the third part we do cardiovascular there and then we do nervous system or something um, sound familiar oh yeah very, i don't do that yeah, that very, is yeah. that is not how i teach my class so i i did this a couple of years ago and it took me forever but i literally went through all the material for the entire class i covered the exact same material i just simply rearranged it so the way that this course flows now is I start off the semester by covering uh, skill development, right? And then I go into speed, and then I go into power, and then I go strength, and then I go hypertrophy, and then I go muscular endurance, anaerobic conditioning, aerobic conditioning, and long duration conditioning or endurance. That's the whole semester. As we're going through, I implement the particular physiology or skeletal muscle or neurology, whatever it that answers that question. And so when we're, say, in the speed development section, all I do is teach them what we know is the best way to enhance speed in an athlete. But along the way, in order to understand that, so the reason that you do, say, repetitions in this range or you need a frequency or amount of times that you train per week to be somewhere between here and here, okay, so that's your answer, coach. Oh, why is that true? Oh, that's because the way that the nervous system uh, develops better is typically shown to be this. Or that's because, say, for speed, the neurological system uh, is heavily involved in causing contraction, but you're not, say, limited by muscle glycogen. It's not a huge issue. So in other words, that would be actually, say, three or four day lectures. So they understand, well, what's muscle glycogen? How's it working? Why does that matter? Well, how does the cell actually create energy, et cetera, et cetera? But you're doing that to help them understand the actual training question or the actual practical question, not just simply saying, oh, you have to learn how ATP is made. Why? Oh, because you won't be a good coach unless you understand physiology. Well, what? <laughs> like, kind of, there's an argument there, but I never felt that my professors or myself or my career, like, you weren't showing me that. You kept telling me that was true, that it would help me. But instead of just trying to convince them it's true, I just answered the question. And it, and it comes out of my class so natural of being like, well, why is it that, you know, for hypertrophy that the training range can be so large? Oh, interesting question, Zach. Well, let's look at the physiology of what induces muscle hypertrophy. And that actually, that is the actual answer. Once you understand, well, the physiology of what causes a molecular cascade to cause you to increase muscle size is caused by this, this, and this, and this. Okay, well, then... That is actually the training prescription. So it, it's crazy. It works out much better that way. So, I mean, that's how I teach all of my classes now is I just simply go through, you want to know the principles of strength and conditioning? I lay them all out to you. And as a better way to understand that, you learn what physiology is relevant or not at that time. Yeah, man, I would, I would have definitely have loved to, to learn it that way because I, I I know I felt this way, and then I've heard a lot of people express as well. And Zach, I'm sure you share similar thoughts. Is you can get can come out of that, or come out of uh, learning it in school, or even just studying for the CSCS, and really know nothing about practical programming. 
um, because it starts with all the physiology, but you've never really learned how to apply anything versus if you know how to apply it and you kind of work, work that way, you have uh, something to attach it to, uh, which just makes a lot more, more sense in my mind as well. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's just the fundamental shift in perspective, even though, again, I mean, I literally took the exact same slides. Yeah. I just rearranged them. Like, it, it's nothing different. It's, so it's all about the way that it's presented. Yeah. And so people would leave my class being like, no, I don't really do too much physiology in that class. <laughs> like, the whole damn thing is physiology. Like, all we're doing is physiology. Yeah, yeah. I just told you I was teaching you the best way to train for hypertrophy. And you got, you instead of hating the physiology part, they would be super pissed if I'm like, well, that part of the physiology, you're going to have to learn on your own. They'd be like, oh, come on. So yeah. it's, you know, it's just all about how you package things. My uh, brother is in medical school now, and he just finished up his first semester. And it was, you know, the, it was the kind of brutality that he expected. And the school that he picked, he picked it because the way the curriculum's taught is quite similar to what you mentioned. It's this kind of holistic approach where they'll look at, you know, rather than truncating things, it's this, uh, I don't want to say systems approach, but it's looking at solve or not solving, but answering a question from different angles and then bringing it together for a rounded picture. It just, yeah, makes a whole lot more sense. And then two, I imagine once your students get to what would be a standardized final exam or your final exams, it's a little bit fresher in their minds because they've been making these connections as they go. Yeah. And they just, we have like a 95% CSCS pass rate. Wow. It's like they just crush it. And they don't study hardly anything. (laughs) How mad do you get at the kids who don't pass? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not mad because typically they, uh, they they, they should not take that test. (laughs) So in the time that I was in school, things, uh, I imagine uh, slides that I uh, was shown at the time would look a bit different now I, if we just start, for instance, with um, uh, hypertrophy. So hypertrophy yeah. was this range that existed. And I remember thinking, <clears throat> and you know, when we, this was, gosh, uh, Four or five years ago, I, I asked myself, like, is this um, a rep range that we have chosen or that has been studied simply because for building muscle, it's the best trade-off for the amount of volume you can put in versus what you right. can recover from? And I think part of that's held up, but, you know, I, I would never have thought that with some close, with, with some proximity to failure that you could have a, a hypertrophic um results that would equal that uh that are quote unquote in this hypertrophy range say something that is like with close proximity to failure at 30 uh you know there might be practical limitations for someone who say like is quite very strong uh and their ability to frequently hit these uh, very high rep ranges for a, a hypertrophy benefit but i think the landscape of our hypertrophy uh understanding is much has much changed and i think largely uh, due to your research because i remember even one of our our science consultants who professes at Furman university in south carolina he was formerly my master's uh i'm sorry he was formerly a master's uh, student who or sorry when he was a phd student he was a um uh, how does that work and he's he was he a kind of like a not a part-time lecturer but I think per the PhD that he had to yeah, uh, lecture. For. I, I forget what, what his, his role was, but even he said, and this was like, you know, uh, late 2010s, he said, I don't know if I'll be able to see the, the benefits of my research in my lifetime. And he was discussing mm-hmm. things that were more hypertrophy based, but fast forward seven years. And I think you've helped pave a path towards a very different field and a different very different understanding of this this topic uh, hypertrophy specifically yeah uh well so the, the benefit is that is one that's very tangible and in large part we can thank brad schoenfeld for this he uh, you know has just done such a tremendous amount of work in the area of muscle hypertrophy from the practical aspect not necessarily the molecular side but just from that and it's interesting because all he simply did is 
the same thing that you and I talked about at the beginning, which is sat in the same classrooms or read the textbook and, and read things like all hypertrophies is, you know, best trained between eight to 12 repetitions. And that was just reverberated in every textbook and chapter and, and blog post. And he had so many years and at this point, decades of training experience. He thought, like, I don't know, it's weird. I'm seeing hypertrophy at sets of five. I'm seeing hypertrophy at sets of 15 or 20 or whatever. And so not that he didn't trust research. In fact, he trusted research so much. He thought, well, if it's true that it's optimized between eight to 12, like, I want to read those studies. And as he searched further and further and further, he realized like that whole notion was actually based on a very limited amount of research. And so he, what he did is, is actually start performing studies and say, well, let's test eight, eight to 12 reps versus 20 to 25 versus five to eight. And let's test frequency, you know, what's better twice per week or four times per week, or let's, let's test total absolute volume per week and, and all these different variables. And, and he started to put together an unbelievably productive career that, that really changed a huge portion of, of our textbooks are now different. The certification stuff you asked me at the very beginning here what's something i've changed in the last three to five years well, that's absolutely one of them i would say within the last three or four years i have definitely changed my slides and the way that i test and what's an acceptable correct answer when i ask them you know what's the training prescription for hypertrophy and that's directly because of brad and people like brad that i'm doing work in that area so that's stuff that he just started i mean i think brad got his phd in 2000 and 12 or 13 or something so we're not talking about some dude who's been toiling away in a lab since 1970 and we're finally starting to reverberate the his work like he just started doing this a few years ago and it's like holy crap now he's put out 40 studies yeah like geez okay like it's not like he just published one or two studies and we're rewriting the textbooks like he's just done so much work and men and women old people like well-trained untrained that you're like okay (laughs) you know impressive so yeah so you know the, the hypertrophy um, literature, you know that was definitely, if I recall, like that would look different now. Uh, another area that, you know, it was, I think it was common, right? Uh, I think it was in the seventies. Uh, of course, you have a tremendous like wealth of knowledge as for the history, as for how this has progressed. But I remember learning that there was a time when people took to running initially as something that was either a hobby or something to sport. And the CDC was like, they're going to be bodies littered everywhere. Like you're going to die. But then eventually running became, you know, probably, or not probably running became uh, the most popular way of, uh, and and of course, due to accessibility, the easiest way to exercise. And it seems like the literature, of course, with, with that availability followed that path. So, I remember even in school, things were largely about uh, aerobic uh, fitness, uh, longer endurance efforts, not just in terms of uh, performance and the physiology therein, but also for health. Um, and as we've Sorry, also- I'm going kind to of... cut you off real quick. I got a funny story on that. Don't forget, okay, don't forget yeah. your question. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say is that, is that uh, I think, so some of that I think is, is holding up, like you know what we know with endurance, but Kyle and I often- we, we've been consulting with Alex Harrison, who's a uh, uh, sports science consultant for Renaissance Periodization. And we're like, Alex, we feel like we're good on strength. We feel like we're good on hypertrophy. We, we kind of get this long, slow distance stuff because that seems to be, or, you know, it's, we learned plenty of that. But what about interval training? And you mentioned that earlier, like, you know, where, where was that in the education? And there, there'd be some, but it wasn't really flushed out. So now Kyle and I have been consulting and we've been trying to research like, okay, well, what really does drive someone's VO2 max mm-hmm. uh, optimally? Uh, questions that I don't think I had good, great answers to based on what was available at the time. But before you answer that, I don't want you to forget your thoughts. Okay, so I'll come back to that. <laughs> when I did my PhD, I did it at uh, Ball State and Ball State started uh, one of the first ever human performance laboratories in America. So in the 1960s, I believe. Uh, it was run by a guy named Bill Costell, or Bill, <laughs> Dave Costell, sorry. Uh, Dave, he's a legendary figure in exercise physiology, sports nutrition. Uh, he did all the work, or not all the work, but a large part of the work on things like, oh, it turns out you use muscle glycogen for higher intensity exercise. 
things that we just find is commonplace now that carbohydrates are better for higher intensity and fat is better for lower intensity, things like that. Uh, this, a lot of this came from, from Doc Costell. So legendary guy. And anyways, he tells these stories about how in the sixties and seventies, uh, that he and the people in the lab would go for jogs. So they would leave, they would walk outside the lab and go for a jog kind of around campus. And there's a little pond that's, I don't know, probably like 800 yards away from the laboratory. And that he said that like on Fridays were their running days. And so they would go out of the lab, jog down to the pond, and jog back. So, you know, you're talking like a mile and change and people on campus were so worried that some, one of them was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> they were going to have all these problems. <laughs> and it's like, this guy is doing, like he's VO2 maxing Prefontaine his lab. He's, he's running VO2 max on Frank Shorter and all, like all these things. And they're running these crazy trials where they would, you know, they would want to understand, well, our, okay, what's better to have during a workout, carbs, protein, or fat or whatever. And so, you know, you would get a different macronutrient and then you would run on the treadmill to exhaustion. And these would be four, five, six, seven hour running trials. You know, and then you have to come back and repeat it again with the other food. <laughs> it's like, so when you said that, it's like, yeah, the, we, it wasn't that far away. And when we thought that, yeah, just a little bit exercise like that. And people, he said, people on campus would just stare at him like, oh my God, these guys are nuts because they're you know, jogging a mile or something like that once a week. Just completely nuts. So, oh, and now we're kind of going through that. Uh, I think we, you know, we're, we're past the initial shock of, you know, people can lift and, and not only can they be healthy, but it could almost, in, in, not almost, it can in many instances uh, promote, uh, you know, tons of, of health benefits and whether it's musculoskeletal or, or uh, something that's, uh, well, you know, run the gamut. It, there are uh, incredible health benefits to resistance training, but I, I feel like you know, that might've been in the past like 10 to 15 years. So it's, it's interesting to see how it's evolved. Um, but yeah, so as for your slides for uh, things like interval training, uh, I'd love to hear how that's evolved, if at all. And then if you wouldn't mind, Andy, I, um, maybe this would then segue into kind of your research specifically and, and how we might be talking and for the listeners, uh, you know, we, we're talking about um, endurance characteristics, muscle mass. Andy mentioned power, speed. What's uh, what are you quote unquote type for? What might someone be best at? It? This might not be as hard and fast as we might have learned it in school. There might be some uh, interconnectedness or uh, these uh, abilities for tissues to adapt to a stressor that you put on them, uh, which I think Andy, you'll, you're no one better than you to talk about that. But but if if first we can discuss. Yo, too. I I would love to hear how those slides look. Like. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a lot. Um, okay. We're, let's let's. Vo two. I got ahead. Uh, of which one do you want to go for first? How vo two looks different now, if at all, than how training for it. Training for it. Uh, training for improved vo two max might look different now than it did in that same amount of. Um, well, it sort of would depend on who you would ask. I don't honestly think it's that different. I think in general, people's perception is just more accurate now than it used to be. But those in the know were still saying the right things for the most part in the 60s and 70s. Uh, people just weren't listening. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you look at the metric directly, so VO2 is volume of oxygen consumed. So right now, all three of us have a certain VO2 right? It's very low. Uh, what people typically hear when they hear that word is VO2 max. So it's the maximum number you can put out. So what we have now is a, a confusion of nomenclature or language. And uh, if you go back to where I explained to you how I teach my classes, at the very end there, I kind of snuck in the way that I teach conditioning is, you know, hypertrophy, then muscular endurance. Muscular endurance would be, say, something like, uh, you know, push-ups for a minute or can you do a hundred push-ups? you know something that takes more than probably 20 or so repetitions so 100 kettlebell swings is not a test of your vo2 max or your metabolic endurance it's a test of your muscular endurance sliding further down that spectrum you're now into anaerobic capacity so this is something that's more like 30 seconds to two or three or so minutes of a maximal effort so this could be one of the shorter crossfit workouts um i don't know any of their names but something like that could be a um, somewhere like uh, 
a 400 meter sprint to a 600 meter, 800 meter sprint. So it's kind of depending on how fast you are, something in that realm. Past that is in maximal aerobic capacity. And that's something that's going to take, again, in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 to 15 minutes over there. And then the last spectrum is long duration endurance. And so now this is how long can you go? And this is now 15 or so minutes to infinity. So it's those last three segments that are that are the confusing part here. So often, and I would say when we were in school, we were taught that the last one, that long duration endurance, was the best way to improve your VO2 max. And if you just simply look at that logically, why would jogging or swimming or cycling or whatever you're doing, pushing a sled, whatever, why would doing that sub-maximally for an extended time improve your ability to do something maximum? Well, this is, this is no different than somebody who's complaining they're not getting stronger because they're doing sets of 15. Well, more specifically, that's not to say that that wouldn't help you at all. Certainly, for a lot of people, long-duration, steady-state work can absolutely improve your VO2 max, particularly those people that are untrained. But to give an example, we used to have a class called the Marathon class, and this is what it sounds like. So at the beginning of the semester, you ran as far as you can, and in order to pass the class by the end of the semester, you had to complete a marathon. <laughs> so most people uh, would run you know, say three to five miles is their max the first day. And um, over the course of three years running the class, every single person always finished the marathon at the end. But half of the people saw a significant increase, in, and we actually published this paper, saw a significant increase in their VO2 max with this basically long duration. Uh, there was no intervals or anything like that in training. It was all basically just your standard, you know, run five miles this week, run seven next week, run nine next week, kind of the old running approach, if you will. And that's a whole other topic, but uh, half the folks significantly improved their VO2 max. The other half of them didn't. But remember, all people finished the marathon. They all went from running three miles as their maximum to now running 26 plus. Some of them saw an improvement in VO2 max, some of them didn't. And so I'm not saying that's unrelated. I'm just saying it's not the most direct metric. Something more like that anaerobic maximal conditioning or more specifically the maximal aerobic capacity is, is much more direct. And so what the research has borne out now, thanks in large part to people like Marty Gabala in Canada and other folks is, okay, if you want to improve your VO2 max, the most direct thing you could do, just like if you want to get better at shooting a free throw, the most direct thing you could ever do would be to shoot a free throw. If you want to get stronger at picking up a weight off the floor, the most specific direct thing you could do would be pick the heaviest thing you possibly can up off the floor, if you want to improve the maximum amount of oxygen you can bring in and use, do something that challenges that, and that typically takes 5 to 8 or 12 minutes to get into. That's where we're at. So that would be the core of what I say. If you want to actually improve your VO2 max, spend time doing tasks that are there. Spend a little bit of time doing steady state, uh, sub-maximal, but for extended times. And spend a little bit of time doing more of the anaerobic, shorter 30 seconds a minute, 20 seconds interval range, because that allows you to get an extremely high heart rate, but doesn't tack the total volume on. So that, I think, has borne out very clearly in the research, albeit nothing has put it together in from my lab or anyone else like, like that. But that's because no one uh, has really had taken the bandwidth to put together a study that is that comprehensive and that complex and that large. But if we piece all the literature together with our own intuit knowledge, as well as our coaching background, um, that whole piece is what makes the most sense for something like VO2 max. And it, it really, honestly, like you started the show with, man, like it just goes back to specificity. Like it, it's for a strength conditioning coach, you hear that, you're like, well, yeah, duh. But so like, I'm not sure why it ever went the other way. Um, it, it's because there. So. It's been known. Um, we can also thank, I, I got a chance to work with a guy named Vernon Coffey, who's an excellent muscle researcher out of Australia. And I can kind of go here, but this is uh, from the molecular aspect of it. There are certain things that I even taught in my classroom five years ago, seven years ago, from projects that we worked on um, from the interference effects of endurance training with muscle hypertrophy or strength, say. Uh, that in the last five years, we've realized not only that is that not true, it's wrong, and then the molecular mechanisms are entirely wrong. We thought certain proteins and things in the muscle do fundamentally are just wrong, and they're maybe going out of the direction. So we have expanded our knowledge of 
what is in the research world called concurrent training. So this would be simultaneously in your program doing both endurance work and uh, hypertrophy and strength work. The downside of that, and we could certainly uh, talk a lot more about that if you want to move on to something else, but the downside about that, that particular research, so again, that's if you want to read more about that, just search for, in science, it's called concurrent training. Uh, it's only really examined things like hypertrophy in the sense of you know, three sets of 10 at 70%, combined with, say, cycling for 45 to 60 minutes. If you want to ask about, well, how do high-intensity intervals and things like that, well, that, that is a whole open area that we, we haven't figured out that relationship. Um, so we have some pretty decent conclusions regarding that other form of concurrent training, so your standard lifting versus your standard, you know, quote-unquote, cardio or endurance. Uh, but anything else in between that uh, is is very much open and hasn't been explored yet. So I'll stop there, and I don't know where you want to go. I, I, would, I think it would be awesome to go in more into the topic of uh, concurrent training. I think a lot of our audience trains uh, in that way to some to greater extent yeah. than others. But I think, um, yeah, going into maybe those things that, you said have changed a lot like or or are completely wrong and uh all of that would be really really interesting and wherever you want to start there i guess and just ask questions off of that yeah. yeah and if i could just turn in for a second it does seem like this missing piece uh where you know with the rising popularity of sport of fitness or crossfit uh these questions uh might come up say should i uh, hit my intervals at the same speed and hold? Should I try to ramp up faster uh, as the workout progresses? This seems to be an, something that, practically speaking, this population has questions about that we just don't seem to, as you said, there's, I imagine those studies, as you alluded to, would be anything but easy to put together, but we just don't quite seem to have the answers to them uh, uh, as, as perhaps confidently as we do others. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it's just complicated. We, at this point, here's what we can say. We'll go for the easy, easier one. And let's say the, the standard concurrent model there. Uh, I can give you the whole long story for it, but the quick version is uh, there's an original paper by a gentleman named Robert Hickson in 1980. And Hickson was fantastic because he went to work uh, as a postdoc, I believe, or a doctoral student with a guy named John Halazi at the University of Washington, St. Louis. And Halazi is widely regarded as the father of, of exercise biochemistry. Biochemistry uh, Just passed away recently, but a tremendously successful researcher. And, and he, like Costel, um, come from that generation of 1960s to 1970s exercise physiologists who were almost exclusively or entirely interested in simply endurance running, swimming, cycling. And this is one of the reasons, as a side note, why almost all of the research in this field comes from those things it's because uh the, all the researchers at the time that's what they did they were all runners in college cyclists in college swimmers in college we didn't have people that were interested in playing basketball or lifting weights or wrestling that went in to get phds in exercise physiology so no research got done in those areas and part of it is kind of chicken and egg because one of the reasons why people like that didn't get into phd programs is because the people that were running the phd programs pick students who are interested in what they're interested in. So it's kind of kind of back there. Yeah. Um, I'm actually really fortunate. We talk about this all the time, but people tend to see me as kind of unique in the field, which, uh, you know, whatever, true or not, I don't know. But it, it's because people like me know now there's there's 180 Galpins in, in terms of there's so many people with PhDs that, that are super into weightlifting or powerlifting or all kinds of other stuff. And, and it's been really cool in the last 10 years to see people like that really start popping out because now there's an explosion of research in these other areas to fill in some of these gaps like intervals. I mean, dude, you got a ton of people that are CrossFit junkies that are getting PhDs now. And so you better believe you're going to start seeing answers to questions like this that we don't have. And it's really, really cool. Um, you got chiropractors and medical uh, MDs and surgeons and stuff that are competing and, and MMA and wrestling and just like all this awesome stuff. And so um, there's an explosion there, which is going to be really cool. But anyways, back to Hickson. So Hickson went to work with Halazi, but Hickson was a lifter. And uh, Halazi wanted him 
to Ixen to start going on runs with him and all that stuff, and Ixen did not want to, and eventually caved because that was his advisor. And what he started to notice is as he started doing more and more runs with Halazi, that his bench press was going down. And then his squat started going down. And he would get these many arguments that, you know, all this running was bad for his lifting. Halazi would say no, and more importantly, didn't care because who cares about lifting? It's all about running. So eventually they devised a study in which they put people into three groups. One group got lifting, one group got endurance running, and a third group got both. So what's cool about this is they didn't cut the volume in half or reduce it at all. Like they literally just got both training programs, <laughs> which is awesome. And you can go through all the details of the study if you want, but the, the, the short version is, of course, the group that did both uh, had equal VO2 max adaptations as the running group only, but had significantly worse and a significant loss of strength and muscle hypertrophy. And this really launched the idea that there's what's called an interference effect from endurance exercise on hypertrophy. So a couple of years go by until 2000, the first study came out, Putnam, I think was the first author, and showed the molecular consequences of that. So they found a certain protein uh, that signals the muscle to hypertrophy is actually inhibited uh, by that endurance running. So the endurance running rather activates a protein that activates another protein that blocks the cellular signal to hypertrophy. So then we went a couple of decades thinking, oh my God, this stuff is terrible for you. Never ever do any endurance training. It's gonna block, it's gonna block all your gains. Well, people eventually started to challenge that and we started realizing, well, that protein, it doesn't only do that. Sometimes it blunts hypertrophy, sometimes it augments hypertrophy. And not all endurance exercise does this. And for example, when we do intervals, sometimes we see an interference effect, sometimes we don't see an interference effect. And it turns out, if you look at the entire story, my opinion on the collective body of research suggests that that interference effect is a real phenomenon if a couple of things are true. Number one, you don't have sufficient caloric intake. Two, the training volume for either is too high, uh, but particularly for the endurance stuff. And three, uh, if you're untrained. So somebody who's fairly trained, who's not doing a ton of aerobic work and is eating enough calories, you're not going to see much of an interference effect. The question of, well, what is too much endurance training? Well, I don't know. I mean, certainly if you're going for a mild jog every day, that's not going to block much gain. You're running 25 miles a week. Well, that's probably going to stop some leg hypertrophy. But uh, where's the middle ground? I don't know. How does that work with intervals? I don't have a clue. How does this work with a CrossFit athlete who's normally, or a weightlifter who's normally who's used to squatting eight to 12, 13 times a week? I, nobody knows the answer to any of these questions. Um, does that mean I can't do aerodyne sprints, you know, 20 on, 20 off once a week? I don't know. I mean, I, I just I just don't know. Um, my general thought is when I look at the molecular mechanisms, knowing what I know about them, if you can keep your calories up enough and the total volume stays down, um, and you can mix it up, I think you're going to be just fine. But that's where we are. And so even literature reviews with the, the project we worked on with, with Vernon Coffee, you know, in 2005 or so, when that stuff came out, uh, the mechanisms look pretty solid. Okay, this is, well, now we know much more about mTOR and AMPK and AKT and TSC2 and some of these other proteins that are involved in this. And we know, like, it's complicated, man. Like these proteins don't just do one thing. It's, it's a malou for a reason. So, you know, uh, AMPK might do a certain thing when the amino acid environment is, is one way, but if that amino acid is changed, it does it entirely different. And um, they do not just a couple of things, but these proteins do hundreds, if not thousands of different activities. And that's all regulated by how the other molecular environment, the electroproteins are, and all that's doing the same thing. So literally you have an incalculable number of potential different options of what could be happening there. And they're all changing based on another one and based on sleep and based on a magnesium and copper, it's just like everything matters. And so I think we're left just sitting back being like, oh boy, okay, here's what I can tell you. If you're not eating much and you're jogging 80 miles a week and you're trying to put on my leg muscle mass and ain't going to help outside of that, I don't really know. Yeah. Do you feel any like, the and I, I was jumping all over the place earlier because sometimes I'm in this spot where 
for our, namely for our CrossFit athletes, you want to give them the best. And if they're responding well and improving and recovering, you know you're, you're doing well. But you know, as a coach, you want to give your athletes the best. So you ask these questions. Um, but I'm sometimes impressed as for what they can handle, especially these athletes at high level. Do you feel like, and I tried to get to this too soon, but do you feel like any of your research uh, that has shed insight into how our muscle fibers can adapt to different stressors and how they might be able to change might explain the type of results we're seeing from, say, some of these games level athletes who, outside of just being genetic freaks, are doing things that perhaps the textbook said, you know, couldn't be done, as you just said, shouldn't be done by nature of previous studies. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, our knowledge of, of muscle physiology and what it does and does do has changed extensively in the last decade, the decade before that. It keeps evolving. I'm at the basic point now where I basically don't think anything is fixed in muscle other than a few things. Is It, it, it's, it all comes down to exposure. And exposure can be a product of intensity or volume, and it's a combination. So given enough time, basically everything changes to some scale. And given enough exposure, it does. And so I think you're right. I mean, I think what you said is the correct answer. All of this stuff depends so much on the entire breadth of the molecular environment. It's really tough to pinpoint anything down past that. So things that we think didn't change a decade ago now looks like they do. Um, I've spoken at length about my opinion on uh, hyperplasia. Um, so if you're familiar with that, it's the concept that you grow a new muscle fiber and traditionally you're taught in your exercise physiology laboratory that that doesn't happen. And, and I'll go to my grave thinking it does. Um, <laughs> so I think we just have learned so much. I mean, every part of the muscular contraction process is we now have evidence for the most part, um, being a bit facetious, but not too much. Uh, it changes. Some of it changes quickly, some of it doesn't. And things we didn't think changed, it was directly because we didn't either look at them in the right population or in the right circumstances, or we didn't have the technology to be able to image or measure it appropriately. And once we have more specific, precise measurement techniques, we see, oh yeah, it is actually changing. It just was doing it at a small level that we couldn't see it through this, this, this lens yet. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what's really going on. And I think the way that we had understood muscle fiber types in the past, you know, I, I was taught you have these enduring fibers, you have those in the middle that kind of do both, and you have these really big, powerful ones. And the way you're taught it, or at least the way that it was understood, you kind of put yourself in these, these boxes. And probably the most amazing example that I, I always give of this is, is one of our athletes who uh, I was very close with her in college. She's still a client of mine, actually my first client as the business started going. Uh, she was a sponsored cyclist, but then ultimately two to three years ago competed in Russia for Team USA in weightlifting. She never knew her potential down the barbell. So I, I think that as we consider concurrent training, it almost seems like you can find this relationship within a larger plan where you have training for a specific goal, whatever that goal might be, whatever is speaking to you. But it sounds like with the flexibility and the uh, interweaving nature that these fibers might have, even, even within, as I've heard you say, a single fiber uh, on the region of the fiber could suggest, hey, you know, Maybe you don't have to, even if you have a specific interest or sport that you train for, only stick to that one thing all the time. Uh, do you think that this also speaks to the importance of an off-season or a variety? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think kind of what you brought up earlier, too, as well as that we just have so far to go because we're at a chicken and an egg, it's a catch-22. In other words, if you are a fast-twitch person, let's say I could develop a test to measure and you're 90% fast-twitch, I, I still don't know what to do about that because I don't know if that means now you should train more fast-twitch because I know you have them 
or you should do the opposite. Some could argue, no, 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 you already have that part down. You need to be more well-rounded, train the other direction. And so now you have the exact same data leading to two entirely different, in, in fact, directly opposite training prescriptions. And so that, that, that's the part where it's like, oh, God, um, I, I don't like, I just don't, we don't have enough data to, to answer that. We're probably a long ways away from that. So that has to come down to now the coach, the, the individual, the person, what's the goal, where are we at? And so to me, most athletes, depending on where you're at, this is not true. Some athletes it's not, but most athletes need to have a plan because if we look at long-term athletic development or adaptation, if, if it's very clear specificity wins, uh, this is what I mentioned earlier, it, it, there's no question, there's no debate here that if, if you want to get better at snatching 300 pounds, the single best thing you could ever do is try as often as you can to snatch 300 pounds. This is, call it Bulgarian, call it whatever you want. But it's also very clear the body won't last and won't hold up for that very long. And so even like the Bulgarians and Abedeev's system, <clears throat> you can only do that if, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, hold on. <clears throat> Apologies. You can only do that either for so long or if you have spent sufficient time building up the foundation such that the body and the joints, the ligaments um, are in a position where they can handle that load. The, the movement quality has to be such that it's extremely consistent so that the load is being dispersed over the same places and uh, every single time and that that place is being dispersed is the place you want it to be that can handle that load. If either one of those are off, uh, that whole 300 pound snatch thing is only gonna last so long until you break. Something gets hurt, something gets overused. So we have to balance and we have to look at uh, specificity versus that longer term adaptation. So in program design, you know, we would just call this basically the farther away from competition you're at, the more general your programming. And as you get closer to competition, that that carrot narrows and you get more and more and more specific. Depending on the athlete and depending on their phase, you can hedge more or less time towards one of those two things. So if we take, say, a 16-year-old uh, soccer player, well, you shouldn't be doing soccer drills only because you might get them really good in the first six months of soccer or something, but that person is very likely to pl plateau event fairly quickly, if not and be induced by an overuse injury because now they're using the same exact movement plan over and over and over again. And if it's not perfect, that's how we lead to chronic overuse injuries. So that person should be more focused on the other end of the spectrum, which is general development with a little bit of specificity uh, peppered on there, maybe right before they get into competition or right during the middle of the season. But outside of that, you know, 80% of that 16 year old's training time should be more general. You flip that to somebody who's, say, 25 and on the U.S. women's national soccer team, well, that person might be doing 80% specific, 20% general, because they've already spent, hopefully, the prior 10 years building that strong foundation and doing 80%. Where we see people have the problem is they get into, say, weightlifting after college at 22, they jump into a, a Bulgarian program or a highly specific program without that decade of foundation, or they do, you know, a six week GPP phase. Like, <laughs> that's not enough, man. That's not even remotely close to enough. You need to be spending years yeah. building that foundation. And I'm saying it takes you years before you ever do a one rep max or go through a strength phase. But I'm talking about, you know, balancing across the year. If you're spending more than half the time being hyper specific doing singles and you're under a couple of years of training, that's probably not going to end well. Um, I mean, even like right now, Morgan King, who's, a, who's an Olympian, uh, she's spent basically three months now doing a tremendous amount of GPP. And you know, we had to rebuild her. Prior to Rio, it was a solid year of basically just one rep max every day. But that's because she spent three years prior to that building a foundation. So even somebody like that spent years on a foundation did specific for a year, and now we've rebent, gone back and spent, hopefully, uh, you know, not three years, but at least a solid year, basically, building foundation to try to get her ready for 2020 if she's fortunate enough to make that. But uh, if we just kept her doing one rep maxes from 2016 to 2020, she wouldn't make it to 2020. Her performances would go down like they did, and probably her injuries would creep up like they did. 
And so we had to stop reset and go, no, no, we need more of a foundation time. Um, and so weightlifting is an easy example here because it's the movement is the training. Other sports are not as direct, but I, I think that's my general answer. And I'm, I'm not even at this point remembering what your question was, but that's, that's where I'm going to stop talking for the moment. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think it, it speaks to how, and the, the question you answered uh, brilliantly was how this adaptability of uh, our bodies seems to not just pigeon, pigeonhole you to only one type of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which should then imply that you should only ever train that one thing, but that actually when done correctly, there is a method behind long-term success that involves, even when your sport's very specific, some more general phases of training. And yeah, I've, I've heard, um, and I, I know I, I knew Morgan when she was a muscle driver on the East Coast, um, but you know, you hear about some of the bigger names uh, out, like off the Olympics, taking like three months off and swimming or cycling and just having some kind of uh, psychological reset um, or, or just a time to let their, their ligaments and tendons heal uh, from that ultra-specific work. Uh, do, you, do you mind, Andy? Because I think sometimes uh, people really just can't grasp how the, how the and, and oftentimes for, for and we usually haven't used this term, but if you're listening, uh, we have a principle that's called the said principle, which basically says that the body adapts to the stressors placed upon it, which is what we've been discussing in this podcast. And it's uh, held up uh, in Andy's lab and it's held up with these areas of concurrent training that we didn't think were possible, such as the, what you see with high-performing CrossFit athletes. But to just really emphasize that, Andy, would you mind sharing some of the results you found from the twin study that you guys conducted? Oh, Sure. The eternal problem with science is you, you can only do it one of two ways. Um, the vast majority of studies and uh, training studies in science are 16 weeks or shorter. And in the grand scheme of your life, that's very, very, very short. So typically, we're always asking ourselves, well, say this training program or this nutrition style was better, but would that have held up past four months? Was this one just the one that showed better results quickly? But is this one, to say, a better predictor of long-term success, kind of like we we're just talking about? Well, the only solution to that is have people train for two, three, four years in the lab. Well, that's just not practical. It doesn't happen. People graduate. They move. No one stays enrolled. They get hurt. They change. They don't want to do it anymore. It takes a long-ass time. Science is already slow enough. So the the... A solution to that is to say, well, let's just look at people who have been already training for 10 years in a certain way and compare those to another group of people who have been training for 10 or 15 years in a certain training style. And that's fine, but the problem with that is we don't know if it was because of the training or if it's because they were naturally like that, right? So are the weightlifters different than the powerlifters because they got into weightlifting because they already were like that? They were born that way, vice versa. So there's downside to both of that. The only possible solution to that is if somehow you could come up with a miracle circumstance in which you had people that were controlled for their DNA, but yet still had a, a huge difference in how they trained or eat or slept or whatever, and they did it for a long time. Well, a handful of years ago, we were fortunate enough to find exactly that. And we found a pair of monozygous twins. So this means identical, uh, it literally means they have the exact same DNA. So that was controlled for. So we couldn't say any differences we found between these twins were because, you know, they inherited something different or they were like, that was identical. But one of the twins um, was a, a, a truck driver for a potato chip company and didn't really exercise at all. And the other twin had been doing Ironmans and marathons uh, very routinely for 30 or so years. So we had the best possible solution. Exact same DNA controlled for huge difference in physical activity and lifestyle and about 30 plus years of difference there. So the intervention was huge. And so we looked at them and what we found was a bunch of very interesting things that their body mass was almost identical, like to the gram. But the untrained twin had uh, three or four or five, I can't remember exactly, more kilos of fat. And so it looked like the only wow. difference was literally strictly in fat mass. Uh, muscle mass was identical between the two. Uh, the trained twin was superior to the untrained twin with all the metrics that you would predict, like VO2 max, uh, blood cholesterol, blood pressure, 
you know, all the standard go to the doctor, get a physical checkup as predicted. And so, you know, that 60 years of exercise physiology research on runners and joggers, you know, it held up. It's not wrong. It's not bad data. Jogging five miles every day is, is a lot better than sitting in a truck delivering potato chips. Right, that, that's pretty clear. Uh, but what was interesting is when we looked at performance, um, there was no difference in strength. Uh, the, in fact, the untrained twin was far stronger in many areas. He had a much higher muscle quality in his legs and in his lower body bone density. Um, all these things were far better in the untrained twin. And when we looked at the fiber type, the untrained twin was a mix of fast twitch, slow twitch, these hybrids that you mentioned earlier. The trained twin was about 95% slow twitch. And so th th this highlighted a whole bunch of things. Number one, is steady state endurance training good for your health? Of course it was. The, the trained twin was far healthier than the untrained twin. Is it the only thing? No, because he wasn't any stronger. In fact, his muscle quality in his legs was lower. And so I think if you want to talk about health, endurance training is good, but endurance training plus some strength training is a lot better. In addition, uh, it answered questions like, does your fiber type change? Yeah, of course it does. How much? Basically infinitely, because the trained twin was genetically determined to be about 50-50, but trained himself to almost 100% slow twitch. He was 95 plus percent slow twitch. I mean, this is, I don't know how much bigger of a change in fiber type with an intervention like that you can possibly get. So, I mean, th that answered a lot of questions right there. The thing to remember though, of course, is again, now we're talking 30 plus years. And so, like I mentioned earlier, to, to me, there's really no limit in adaptability of the muscle. It just comes down to exposure, right? And exposure is a function of intensity and volume. So time, how much? So if he, if he was just jogging once a week for 30 years, we wouldn't have saw nearly that much of a change in fiber type. If he was training like he was training, but it was only a two-year difference, we wouldn't have saw nearly that much change in fiber type. So it's a combination of all these things. Yeah. I, um, I remember hearing Chad Wesley Smith of Juggernaut say that he met, because he's a, he was adopted, but he met his biological siblings. And... Oh, nice. <laughs> just cast shadows on them. Like they were just, yeah. I, I mean, yes, he's very tall, but they were of completely different builds. Uh, muscle mass, uh, or at least his, his, not his muscle mass, because I imagine that there might be fat mass there too, but his, his size was much greater uh, than his biological siblings who he had never met before. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, it, it, it speaks to, I think, so many things, uh, as you've mentioned. We, we're going to gravitate towards what's accessible or what we enjoy. But as you mentioned, we just can't really know potentially where we might excel best uh, unless we... No, you, you really don't. Um, and I, what I'd also say is, like, I, to me, it was, a, it was a success story in terms of yeah, some of us might be born with better genetics, if you want to say that, but some of us aren't. And for those that aren't, it's still, it's, it's not an excuse. Like you still have the chance to make your body do basically whatever you want if you give it enough exposure and enough time. And to me, it was, it's a resounding success story. And the fact that Chad is dwarfing over his siblings, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised, but that's because of how damn hard he's worked for how long and how much he's, how, how well he's ate and all those different things. So if you are born into amazing genetic inheritance, fantastic. Use those gifts and, and become the best you can possibly be. If not, though, it's still your fault. Like You still have a bigger say. So what we typically would people say is oftentimes they would say, well, genetic inheritance is 80% of it. And in the exposome, meaning sort of everything else, is 20%. Well, now I think it's, it's at least 50-50, if not 80. For some metrics, it's 80-20 lifestyle. So, yeah, of course, some of us are born in different places. Look, like, Zach, you and I are never going to make it to the Olympics in weightlifting. Like, not going to happen, <laughs> right? So we didn't get those. Like, this doesn't matter how much work we could do, but that doesn't mean we can't get a whole lot better. And that whole lot better is, is comes down to us, not, uh, not to their stuff. So I think it's, it's the evidence in, from our lab and in many, many, many other labs is just landing in a spot where like, the, the, 
your lifestyle and what you do matters far more than your genetics and far more than we ever believed. Uh, and, and that's, I think that's the story that I want people to understand about that study in particular is it's more on you than we've ever thought, um, which is a good thing because now you have control. It's not your fault, but now you have the ability and the opportunity to, con to control some of it, which is awesome. Yeah, I, I, I can't blame mom and dad for my uh, shit calves, but I can uh, <laughs> just play the long con on this and really try to yeah. do everyone wrong uh, over time. Exactly. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking this is probably better saved for another podcast because it's, it's probably a long answer. But when people say gen, like the genetic plays a role is what actually that means, like what genetic aspects matter, if that makes sense in terms yeah. of performance. Yeah, no, it does. It, it plays a huge role. Um, the way that we can, I don't mean to use a crass analogy, but it, it helps people very well. Um, genetics load the gun but you, you, you pull the trigger. Yeah. So some of us get handed a shotgun, some of us hand, get handed a BB gun. But a BB gun that the pull trigger gets pulled on is still going to hurt a lot more than a shotgun that doesn't get fired. So you know, I, I, sometimes we get uh, this from athletes where they'll say, well, I don't know what, uh, especially with you know, the new year having just started, they'll say, hey, we'll look at, What's down the pipeline? They'll say, "I don't know. If I do, I do weightlifting. Do I do CrossFit? Do I do powerlifting?" And I think uh, what we've learned is that you can do a little bit of everything, as Andy said. And, and why the initial concurrent training research didn't hold up is because they were two separate uh, programs: a strength training or a hypertrophy program layered on directly on top of an endurance program. Well, that's not going to work. But with some emphasis slash de-emphasis. Uh, which is mainly to say that you have a coach or you educate yourself as for how to prioritize different training goals at different times, well, then it may be in your best interest to just kind of go where your heart call uh, is taking you. And if your gym is signing up for an event and you want to train for that, well, then maybe you, again, you kind of like as Andy referenced with your programming and your planning, you narrow that focus, you kind of carry it towards something that is specific to the competition. But if you spend the majority of your time exposing yourself to high intensities of cardio and low intensities of cardio and uh, 15 reps for hypertrophy and seven reps for hypertrophy, you, you do set yourself up not just to be healthy, but to stay in the game uh, a whole lot longer psychologically and from an enjoyment standpoint as well. Uh, Andy, I think you more than anyone would be able to bring that, not just experience yourself. I know that you've tried your hand at a lot of sports, but with your research, be able to validate that. Uh, and I think the twin study really exemplifies that. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I would just sort of agree that to, to answer that initial question that you actually didn't ask me. The answer is weightlifting. That's what you want to do. If you're deciding between weightlifting, powerlifting, crossing, weightlifting is the answer. So <laughs> that's a pretty obvious choice. Uh, no, I kid. Uh, yeah, the other thing to keep in mind is we, we don't yet have anyone in the research field um, that is conducting trials that understands how to program for both conditioning and hypertrophy. So yeah. that, is, that is the problem. Um, if you want to call it a problem, you know, others might think it is, but that is a huge component to it. So it's not that these things don't work. It's just that the programs that have been tried so far haven't worked. And that's, that's, those two things are very different. So I'm sure if somebody like yourself or a thousand people that are in the CrossFit space uh, could say, I have done this a hundred times. I guarantee you could do it. That you might be able to actually pull that off. Um, yeah. So it's just that we haven't figured out, we haven't tested the exact programming yet, but I'm, I'm sure it's possible with some conditions, Matt. So especially early in a training phase, yeah, yeah. there'd be no problem. Yeah. Awesome. Well, very cool. Uh, Andy, again, thank you so much for uh, taking your time. Uh, I really do think that uh, the way that uh, in our discussions you've been able to kind of see the whole picture is, is really, uh, in a way, uh, encouraging that, uh, well, in, in many regards, that A, you just might not know your potentials, B, you might be good at other things that you didn't realize or have ever tried your hand at. And this is all coming from science that has really been facilitated. And as you said, I think maybe as uh, people like yourself and as Brad had facilitated in the past 
seven years. So it's all happening very quickly. And you've definitely been at the fore of helping people uh, stay tuned to that. So we all appreciate it. All right, man. Well, just doing my job. It's nothing we do could never be done if we didn't have people like yourselves out there actually collecting far more data than we could ever collect in our labs. So it's a, it's a give and take for sure. And Andy, I just wanted to apologize. You thanked me off air before we started that I was here, uh, so you didn't have to talk to Zach the whole time. But he ended up asking all the questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes that way sometimes. I'm, I'm sorry about so that. So he so he'll never come back on again. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Andy. Well, uh, we'll uh, um, be speaking to you shortly, and and I'm I'm sure that our viewers know where to find you. But is there any uh, place I know that you're you're putting out more content on your website, anywhere that people can come find what you're doing, stay, stay tuned with, with what's going on in your research and in uh, your educational content? Yeah, you can certainly check out the website, andygalpin.com. I've put all of, uh, as many of my lectures and videos and stuff up there. In fact, if this drops in January, I'm going to be dumping probably another 10 hours of free videos. So that, that uh, course that I described to you earlier, how I teach that, that senior level class, uh, well, that whole thing, basically all the lectures from that class, I'm filming and just putting up on the website for free. Oh, wow. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, uh, three, four hours of it or so is already up. And I'm going to put like another five or six or probably even closer to 10 up this month. So that'll be up. Um, if you want updates, though, I don't update the website super often. I don't have a blog or a newsletter I do on there or anything. Uh, just the, my, my Twitter and my Instagram is probably a better place to get uh, like actual updates and new research we have and things like that are going to be on those platforms. Awesome. All right, Andy. Well, we don't want to take any more of your time. And thanks again for coming on. All right. See you later, guys.